We, um, we have been for several weeks now, we've been in a um, conversation drawn from the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus means the road out, and it refers to, or the word Exodus means the road out, and it refers to the, the means by which God freed his people um, from their slavery in Egypt and delivered them to freedom in the promised land. And uh, we we got to kind of the the hinge of the story, or the the first half of the hinge of the story last week, and we're going to look at the second half of the hinge today, because everything up to last week was leading to the place where they were granted their freedom. And from this point, we have to figure out what to do with it. So we're, we're going to watch as the as the as they as they move on, having been freed from slavery. Where do they go next? What happens next? And this is a this is a good good um, lesson for us to learn from because this is our situation. We have our freedom. Uh, none of us are slaves, but we have the the question of what are we going to do with our freedom? And so uh, we have been um, learning as we go along that um, that God um, said that He would He would deliver the people. He told Moses and said, "Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go." and in doing so, God set up this confrontation. We're, we're going to find out, or we, ha- we have over the last several weeks, we found out what will happen when an irresistible force meets an immovable rock. So uh, God is the uh, the irresistible force, and Pharaoh was the Im- Im- immovable rock, except, as we saw, Pharaoh was not all that immovable after all. Pharaoh thought so, but he found out otherwise. He found out that God is irresistible, that even... Um, that even mighty Pharaoh compared to God is is uh, something that can be brushed aside. And so uh, we saw over the past several weeks, God God sent Moses. Moses said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And God ramped up the pressure week by, or, or um, a plague by plague, 10 plagues of Egypt, until finally it became intolerable even for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh said, go, just get out, get out, take your stuff with you, go. And so the people have been set free. And now the question is, what happens next? And this is a good lesson for us because we are free. We have so many decisions to make in our life. Let me give an example of this from, from our own world, um, and you can, you can fill in the gaps in your own particular circumstances, but this is one we've all been sharing over the last year, is that when we're locked down, when the public health authorities have said stay home or they've said don't do this or do that, when they've given us instructions, when they've made it an emergency order, uh, there have been uh, uh, rules that we have had to follow that that they are they are um, uh, they, they carry the force of law. There's things we have to do, and so so we may have our concerns. We may say, well, you know, uh, you know, my job is 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 at risk. My my business is closed down. I I need to graduate this year. I've got a class that I'm not so sure about. We know about all those things, and and all we can do is we can hope that the public health authorities are factoring that into their equations. That they're only doing this because they see no real alternative. But it's not our problem. I mean. It's our problem because we have to deal with it, but but we don't get to decide should we lock down or not. That decision is made for us. So so in a sense, we we can be likened. I mean, it's not like slavery, but it has that that character to it that you don't get to decide some things. But as the restrictions come off, as people get their vaccinations and and all the other things that you know they they meet different targets in terms of case rates and whatever else they're factoring into their equations, as as things open up, then we have to decide, now what? What am I going to do? I have my freedom, but what should I do now? 
Should I go out? Should I take my mask off? Should I, should I go to the gym? Maybe I've got one of those comorbidities that people have been talking about for the last year. Should I start working on that? Are there things that I can do? What should I do next? We, we now have a problem caused by our freedom. When we were locked down, we didn't have that problem. And to whatever extent we still are, we don't have that particular aspect of the problem. But when we have freedom, and to whatever extent we do have freedom, suddenly we've got a problem. It's on us to figure out what to do next. And so that is the place where Israel is at. They have been freed. Pharaoh expelled them from Egypt. He said, get out. But now the question is, what do they do with it? Well, we know where they're going. We know where they're going, but they're not there yet. It would be nice if God said, okay, you're free and you're in the land of milk and honey. There you go. Everything's perfect. You're in a, you're in the next best thing to paradise, but they aren't there yet. It's true. That's where they're headed. They're going. God said to Moses, He said, I will bring them up from Egypt into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a good and broad land. Um, uh, they will, they will, um, they will be in this great place, but there's other things in the land besides milk and honey. There are all these ites. God says it's a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the um, Hivites, and the Jebusites. They're living there too. There's a lot of ites there you're going to have to deal with um, when you get there. And as we pick up the story in, in verse 13, we see that is exactly what God's concerned about. He says these people were slaves three minutes ago. They have no courage to face the challenges that are ahead of them. So, so God says, um, uh, we actually get to listen in on God's thinking as we pick up the story in verse uh, 17 of chapter 13. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, when Pharaoh expelled them, said, get out, God didn't lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. So that's the coastal route. Um, but uh, And we'll see a map here in a minute. Um, uh, he didn't lead them up the obvious way. He didn't take them straight up the coast from Israel to, to the Holy Land, um, even though that was the shorter route. God thought, if the people have to run, uh, have to fight and face war, they will run back to Egypt. So God says, you know, I'm not going to do the obvious thing. So God led the people by the roundabout way through the red, uh, uh, the way of the Reed Sea Desert. The Israelites went up from the land of Egypt, uh, prepared for battle. Uh, and then we get this little side note. Um, Moses took with him uh, Joseph's bones, just as um, uh, as he had made them promise, uh, has, as just as Joseph had made Israel's sons promise when he said to them, when God takes care of you, you must carry my bones out of here with you. So uh, 400 years ago, the patriarch Joseph died, and uh, he said, take my bones with you when you go. So they set out for Sakoth and um, camped at Etham. I'm making up these pronunciations. Sukoth, Sakoth, and camped at Etham at the edge of the desert. And the Lord went in front of them during the day in a column of cloud to guide them at night and in a column of lightning to give them light at night. That way they could travel during the day and at night. The column of cloud during the day and the column of lightning at night never left its place in front of the people. And then God said to Moses, he says, turn around. He says, he says, I've got a plan here. So not only am I not taking you on the short, obvious route, but now I'm telling you to turn back around. He says, tell the Israelites to turn back and set up camp in front of Pi between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. 
you should set up camp in front of it by the sea. So God's going to do something at this place. And unfortunately, we don't really know where this place is. So this is the, the eastern Mediterranean Sea, and you can see Egypt down there, and they're headed generally to the Promised Land, but they're not going to take the obvious route, as we heard. So we're going to zoom in on that section. And so this is this is the, the area we're going to look at today. You can see the Nile Delta. All the water comes down from um, half of Africa and uh, makes it very nice to live in that place. Um, so, uh, But uh, you can see the Red Sea down there at the very bottom, and then the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. And so we're going to zoom in one more time. We're going to turn the, the angle so we can see things a little bit better. And so um, so this is what it looks like, according to Google Earth, from space. And um, so so uh, that's that's the place we're looking at generally. And out of all those names, Sukkoth and Edom, Etham and uh, Baal-Zephon and Pahahiroth, Pihahiroth, um, we know where one of them is, maybe. Um, <laughs> We know where Migdal is. We think we know where Migdal is. We believe Migdal is the Egyptian um, archaeological site called Pithom. And other than that, the rest of them are mysteries. So uh, we don't know where any of them are, um, except maybe Migdal. So there's Migdal. Zoomed in one more time. So so um, uh, we we know what their situation is. We don't know where it is, but that's okay. God, has a, God will explain it to us. God says to... Um, to uh, Moses, he says, Pharaoh will think to himself, the Israelites are lost and confused in the land. The desert has trapped them. I'll make Pharaoh stubborn and he'll chase them. I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did exactly that. So Pharaoh's thinking, I will, I will, um, I will create a situation where Pharaoh interprets what you're doing as being lost. That you went out in the desert, you're a bunch of helpless slaves, you got confused in the desert very quickly, and began wandering around. So uh, we don't know where the places are, but essentially what they're doing is they're making a path that, that tells Pharaoh one thing, they're lost. And so there is a lesson for us there. If God is leading us, we may be going in circles. And that may not be a bad thing. <laughs> You know, I think, I think, you know, most of us have this idea, if I, if I ask God to do something for me, that God reorients the entire universe around my particular need. And, uh, that may happen. But I think more often than not, what God says is, okay, I'm going to do the most amazing thing because that's who I am. And I'm going to incorporate your need into the big thing that I'm doing. And in order to do the big thing, you're not going to take the obvious route. And so if you say, well, God must not be leading me because this doesn't make any sense, well, welcome to the club. You are now in the same camp as everybody who's ever been guided by God, that God may lead you in circles because his needs are not, or his purposes are not the same as you may think they are. That that his purposes um, will address your needs, but they may not do it in the way you would have guessed. So, um, God also said um, to Moses, I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, and the, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did exactly that. So the, the Pharaoh, um, Moses and the Israelites did what they were told. They camped by the sea. And what does he mean by that? He says, he says um, I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh. It sounds like, it's like there's some kind of a elementary school pushing contest, you know, that, that I'm going to show you who's boss and so forth. But remember, we're talking about people's lives in, in this situation. God is saying, I want to free them. Pharaoh wants to enslave them. 
I'm going to prevail. The question is, how will it happen? Not because he's concerned about whether Pharaoh is honored by, by his people or not, but he says, Pharaoh has to realize, my purposes will prevail. And he says, Pharaoh could have solved this by leaving well enough alone. But Pharaoh's not done. Pharaoh hasn't let go of the idea that I am a God who liberates people from their terrible situations. Pharaoh still has in his head that somehow he can reverse this situation. And so I'm going to gain honor. And because of the way Pharaoh acts, it will be at his expense. He could give me honor by simply saying, that's right. You know, God God made it clear to me what I should be doing. And instead, um, Pharaoh says um, that he's going to uh, um, do it differently. So we get to decide how God will receive honor. We get, God can do it at our expense because we're working at cross purposes to God. Or we can do it in alignment with God's purposes. So we actually get to decide that. So um, Pharaoh is about to decide that. So we, we now switch back to um, Egypt in verse 5. It says, when Egypt's king was told the people had run away, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people. They said, what have we done letting Israel go free from their slavery for, to us? So he sent for his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captains on all of them. The Lord... so. The Lord um, made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn, and he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. The Egyptians, including all of Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots, his cavalry, his armory, chased them and caught up with them as they were camped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So they're now caught up. We've got the sea and we've got the Israelites, and we've got the Egyptians right there. Now, again, because we don't know where they are, we don't know which sea there are. There's four candidates. We, we're pretty confident it's not the Red Sea. That's, an, that's a translation error you find in some very old um, uh, translations. The King James has it, for example, as the, the, the Red Sea. But the Red Sea is too far south. It's highly unlikely this is the Red Sea. It may be the Gulf of Suez there at the bottom of the picture. It may be the Small Bitter Lake or the Great Bitter Lake. Those are salt lakes like in Utah. So, or they were, now they are part of the Suez Canal. And apparently, I, I learned this this week, that those lakes have been turned into passing lanes. And so you're kind of going through the Suez Canal, and then you, you want to take a, take a stop or something, then you can do it there. Um, the other one is this big lagoon area up at the, the north um, there in Lake Bartowil. So uh, we, don't know, we don't know where they were, so we don't know which one of the seas it is. And one of the things is that you will often see these these programs on TV or something where somebody will say that 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 based on the theory that that the 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 sea that's being crossed the sea of reeds that's being crossed was one or the other then there will be circumstances where they could say we can see how under exceptional circumstances this would actually have parted that people could have gone across the sea under these circumstances Lauren was telling me about one he saw on TV and and you know I I'm impressed by the the scholarship that people put into these things the the problem is I just don't know which sea it is that they're talking about so so you know uh, those those programs are great and people can can um, study them and I encourage them to my guess is it can be a very spiritual uh, thing for them to actually think about how God might have arranged the circumstances that way but since we don't know which sea it is, we don't know, and the circumstances will be different for each one of the, the different candidates. So there's there's various uh, um, uh, commentaries that will suggest it's one or the other. So 
whatever it is, we know the circumstances. We know the Israelites have their back to the ocean, or the, the sea, excuse me. They've got their back to the sea, whatever it is, this body of water, and the Pharaoh and his army is bearing down on them. So they have to get across the sea, or they've got to go into Pharaoh's face, uh, and, and they don't have any boats. So that's their situation. And so we pick up the story in verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Israel, uh, saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, so wait, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I love the next line. I wanted to go straight there. So the, the Israelites were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. That is a great bit of advice. Um, if you ever, if you ever, um, are in a bad situation like this, if you ever have your back up to the sea and the Israel, uh, and the Egyptians are bearing down, cry out to the Lord. I think the reason we don't do that is, is what we tell ourselves is we say, then he'll know I need his help. But see, he already knows that. What will happen is you will know that you need his help. And that would require you to swallow your pride. But God's okay with it. God God knows you need his help. You're not going to give him any new information. And it may be embarrassing, but it's only embarrassing to you. God wants to help you. God, the whole story of the Exodus is God wants to get people out of tough situations. So cry out to God. You can cry out to the Lord. So they do cry out to the Lord, but it's not long before they start looking for a scapegoat. Well, actually, they don't look for a scapegoat. Scapegoats haven't been invented yet. You have to go to the book of Leviticus to find out about the scapegoats. So, so what they do is they look for someone to blame. So, so uh, in a couple of, uh, you know, in the middle of the next book, they'll find out about scapegoats. Right now, they're just looking for somebody to blame. And they seize on Moses. And what do they say to Moses? They say to him, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us out, uh, took us away to die in the desert? This may be the funniest line in all of the Old Testament. And the reason I love it is because if you were to think about Egypt, if you were to close your eyes and think about Egypt, what's the first thing you think of if I say Egypt? You think of somebody's grave. <laughs> and so these Israelites are saying, are saying, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? This country known, known even today, it's been 4,600 years 4,600 years since the pyramids were built, those pyramids. Egypt is known for its graves. And the Israelites are saying, weren't there enough? So, I didn't hear any laughter, but I think this is hysterical. So, (laughs) it's okay to laugh. The Egyptians may be bearing down. Your back may be to, uh, to the sea. But you know what? It's okay to laugh. God made us uh, creatures who laugh. And I think that that's underrated. I think that um, when you laugh, you know, I, I love the idea that there's some uh, prehistoric Jackie Mason who goes up to Moses and says, what? There weren't enough, weren't enough graves in Egypt. You brought us out here. I just love that picture. And, and I would encourage you to do that. If you're in a bad situation, it is okay to laugh. It's not irreverent. It's not wrong. It's something you can do because sometimes laughter is the best medicine. So it is okay to laugh. But then they go on and they say something that isn't really laughable. It's ridiculous, but it's not laughable. They say, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. They say, it would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is the the wonderful thing about memory. It can be so selective. If you go back to chapter 2, Pharaoh is drowning Israelite babies. 
Okay. But they forgot about that. They're saying it was better to work as a slave back in Egypt because they've completely blanked out about the infanticide. It would not have been better. And it's not even a question of, of, of living in Egypt versus dying in the desert. It's a question of, of dying in Egypt versus whatever it is that God's got in front of us. So they are panicking. And Moses says this. He says, don't be afraid. He doesn't debate them, you know, live on your feet, what, die on your feet, live on your knees, live free or die. He doesn't give them some platitude from some, you know, somebody's motto. Instead, he says, don't be afraid. He says, stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never, ever see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. In, in the biblical language, this is a series of four short uh, commands. They're almost barked out. You can imagine him saying, it's like he said, he said, calm down. Stop moving. Watch. And be quiet. That, that's how abrupt what Moses says is. He's telling them, just, just settle down, people. The only one of these that gives any, that he gives any explanation for is the third one. He says, Watch the Lord rescue you today. See the salvation the Lord will bring about today. The Egyptians you see today will never, ever see again. As terrifying as they are, 600 chariots with captains and all that stuff, as terrifying as that is to you, they are temporary. I am the eternal God. You don't have to worry about those Egyptians after today. So don't be afraid. Stand your ground. Watch the Lord rescue you, and keep still. And then God says something else that's funny. He says, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. That's not funny. But what he says next is funny. He says, as for you, Moses, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. And Moses slaps his head and says, well, of course I don't know why I didn't think about that. Just lift up my rod, hold it up over the sea, and part the sea in half so people can go through it dry land. What kind of dummy am I not to thought of that? And then God says, okay, but I'm going to do something else. I'm going to make the Egyptians stubborn. They're not stirred up enough. <laughs> they, they aren't angry enough. They're not pursuing you hard enough. So I'm going to go stir them up. I'm going to go kick over an anthill over here in the Egyptian camp. While you... Do the impossible back here. And he says again, he says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his cavalry. And then it says, the God's messenger, this, this uh, column, the, 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 the pillar of cloud that shows where what God is, uh, God's will is for them. God's messenger who had been in front of Israel's camp moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved them from the moved from the front and took its place behind them. So now they're separated. The Egyptians, the column of cloud, the Israelites, and the sea. So that's the order now. And it says, it stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. They didn't come near each other all night. The Egyptians are afraid to come any closer as long as that pillar of cloud is there. So that's the situation overnight. And then... Um, uh, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. 
The waters were split in two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. And because God has stirred up the, the Egyptian camp, as soon as the cloud goes away, the Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry. As morning approached, the Lord looked down in the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into a panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so they wouldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said what Moses told them would happen. Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. And the Egyptians say, let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So as the Israelites come out from the depression of the sea, the the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, the chariots and their cavalry. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the cavalry. Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them to the sea, not one of them remained. The Israelites, it sums up, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and their left. And the lesson, the Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the amazing power of the Lord against the Egyptians. The people were in awe of the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. At least for today. We're gonna, we're gonna move on through the story. But so far, they have been convinced. They have had a taste of freedom and they found it exhilarating, exciting, terrifying. But they have seen now that they can trust God. And so, that is the situation they're in. And we don't even know what particular body of water this was. So we can't, we can't really go very far down the path of what exactly happened. How were, how, how could the seas have been split? There's, you know, it's not that that isn't an interesting topic, but it's not profitable. It doesn't take us anywhere. So, so if we can't, you know, file that away in our bag of tricks, you know, the next time I'm being chased by Pharaoh, you know, what can I do? If, if that's not the lesson for us, what is the lesson? Well, for 2,000 years, Christians have seen this as a prefiguring of baptism. Last week, we saw how, how um, the, the, the Passover meal is a prefiguring. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the, the Lord's Supper. We saw how Jesus took the Passover meal, and he said, you've been doing this for uh, 1,400 years. And now, from this night forward, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus takes the Passover meal and says, I'm going to give you a replacement. I'm going to give you the Lord's table. And for 2,000 years, Christians have looked at the very next thing that happens in the book of Exodus, and they say that, in the same way, prefigures baptism. And let me explain, because there's an obvious, you know, when you think about baptism, when you think about going down into the water and coming up, we do this every day. It's called bathing. Most people do it every day. Sometimes you stand next to the ones who don't, and, you know, you wish they would. But but we know about bathing. So so it's very easy to see in baptism, it is a symbol of being washed clean, that, that uh, we are washed clean from our sin. But if you've been baptized, and it's been more than about five minutes for most of us, maybe a day or two for some of us, it's not long before we discover that uh, washed free from sin or not, Sin is there. Sin is crouching at the door. In fact, 
in the New Testament, we see Jesus who, who never had sin. He has identified us though in our sin, with us in our sinfulness by accepting the baptism that John offered him in the, the actually John almost denied it to him that John was doing for people in the Jordan River. Jesus accepted this. And what happened next? What is the very next thing that happens in the accounts of Jesus' baptism? Jesus goes into the wilderness where for 40 days he is tempted by the devil. This is the nature of baptism. Yes, it cleans us from our sins. But that doesn't solve the problem of sin. We are free. We are free from sin. Now what? What do we do next? And so what Christians have done is they've looked at this passage and they've said, the one thing that baptism teaches us is that sometimes God separates us just as he separated the Israelites. That they might have been tempted to go back to Egypt. In fact, God says at the very beginning, if they'd gone straight through Philistia, they would have been. They would have turned around and ran back to Egypt. So God has created a situation where they, they wandered around this, this odd path that, that drew Pharaoh out and put them against the wall. And then God made the wall go away. But then God brought the wall back. The way to Egypt is closed off. That part of their past is no more. They, they can remember it. They can celebrate what God did in that part of their past, but it is no longer a viable option for them. It is now firmly and forever a part of their past. And in the same way, Christians have looked at baptism and said, yes, the person I was is not the person who I am becoming. But I can't go back. It is the nature of my baptism that I have been through the sea and the sea has closed back and I cannot go back. So, Whatever it is, whatever your particular pharaoh is, there's going to be a voice that tells you Egypt wasn't so bad. But it's lying. That way is closed off to you. You cannot go back. Baptism is a sign of the, of the irrevocability of God's grace. That God's grace comes to us and we cannot go back to who we are even as we wait to see what God is making us. Baptism is signified by the crossing of the Red Sea. God is a God who divides. He divides day from light, uh, uh, night from uh, darkness from light. He divides the seas, uh, the, the waters above from the waters below. He, di- he divides the waters from the dry land. He divided the sea for the Israelites and he divides us from who we were before we were baptized. So, what do we do? Don't be afraid. Stand your ground. Watch the Lord rescue you. Keep still. Because the Lord will fight for you. Whatever it is you're afraid of, whatever it is that's murmuring to you that Egypt was better, the Lord will fight for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this complicated story, the story of your salvation that teaches us so much about how we are to live as we face the temptations and the challenges of freedom. Lord, we pray that you would guide us, if not by a column of cloud and fire, that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit, through the witness of the body of Christ around us and among us, and 
through our conscience, Lord. Guide us so that we can remember you will fight for us. All we need to do is stand still and watch the salvation you have for us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.